Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to talk about the split between morality and politics, how these things came apart, and we're going to do it through Machiavelli and Adam Smith. I'm going to start with Machiavelli, then we're going to gear shift and talk about Adam Smith. And Machiavelli is, I think, where Edmund and I think that this all really gets started. And there are, of course, a lot of theories in the history of political thought for where's the break between ancient thought and modern thought. I think that Machiavelli plays a very pivotal role. And I don't think Machiavelli necessarily means to play that role, but he stumbles into it. And he stumbles into it because Machiavelli is operating in Italy during the Italian Wars, a series of wars in which France invades Italy and devastates it. And for Machiavelli, the solution is for Italy to unite so that Italy can defend itself from France. And Machiavelli is trying to figure out how can Italy be united? How can this happen? It's been so long since Italy's been united. And he goes, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll look at the Romans. I'll look at how the Romans unified Italy and see what I can learn from the Romans. And in going back and looking at the Romans, the Romans, of course, have all sorts of advice about how to build a state around the concept of civic duty. And Machiavelli loves this stuff. He laps it up. A lot of people have have read The Prince and they think of Machiavelli as this scheming, nasty, brutal guy. But he wrote another much longer book called The Discourses on Livy, which are a set of comments that Machiavelli makes as he's reading through Livy's history of Rome. And the discourses are very interesting and a lot of casual readers tend to neglect them. But they really add to our understanding of Machiavelli because they make it clear that Machiavelli is, for instance, quite content with Republican forms of government. Indeed, he probably preferred a republic to a monarchy or principality. And what's more, it makes it clear that Machiavelli is very interested in building a state that can last, that can unify Italy and then can sustain itself across time. So he wants something that is scalable. And most republics, most merchant republics in Italy were not scalable in the way that the Roman Republic was. So he wants something that he can scale up like Rome. And then he wants to avoid the diseases which caused the Roman Republic to eventually collapse. And he villainizes Julius Caesar for instead of restructuring the Republic's institutions, in his view, turning it into an empire, turning it into a principality. So Machiavelli is very interested in the structure of republics, the structure of states. So why all this dark stuff in the prince? Why all this dark stuff in the prince? I think that a lot of this has to do with this separation Machiavelli makes between morality and politics. And he does it because he's coming into a context where in, in the medieval world, Christians were very acutely aware that morality and the state could come apart. Christians had been badly oppressed under the Roman Empire and badly treated by the Roman Empire. And even St. Augustine, who argues that the Roman state and Christianity should cooperate, is acutely aware of the history of the Roman state not being Christian, is acutely aware that the Roman state will never fully live up to Christian values. And so 
because of this possibility that morality and politics can come apart for Augustine and for medieval political theorists, they think it's very, very important to tie the state to morality and have God commanding the king, to have God in charge of the state so that the state keeps this orientation toward God and doesn't lapse into corruption and sin and earthly, an excessive concern for earthly stuff. But Machiavelli makes the point that to unify Italy and stop Italy from being repeatedly invaded by France, that's not going to work. They're, they're going to have to get their hands dirty. The Romans got their hands dirty all the time. And if someone wants to unify Italy, they're going to have to be willing to do some stuff that is frowned upon. And what's more, Machiavelli argues that political leaders in other countries already act this way. They already do all kinds of things that are frowned upon, that that's just necessary to run a state. And so, therefore, for Machiavelli to run a state, you have to think in a way that is a little different from the way that you would think if you were a spiritual leader. And Machiavelli doesn't want to get boxed in. He doesn't want to give the impression that he's arguing that we should replace Christianity with pagan ethics. So what he instead does is suggests that Christian morality is appropriate to the individual, to the ordinary person, but to the state, you need a kind of political normativity that very heavily resembles the normativity of the Roman state, the values of the Roman state, the concept of civic duty and civic commitment that animates the Roman state, the pursuit of glory, which animates the Roman state. And this in, brings back Roman values, but it brings back Roman values without taking them as seriously as the Romans themselves took those values. For the Romans, the commitment to the Roman state was a personal, ethical, moral orientation. You were supposed to be committed to the state on an ethical level. That was their moral theory. The Greco-Roman moral theory is that you should be committed to the state, performing a role in your society which contributes to its sustenance, and that that's what life is about. That's what your life is about. Machiavelli says, well, you kind of have a choice between the spiritual life and the political life. You can make your life about orienting yourself to God, or you can make your life about doing what's necessary to sustain the state. But those are two different things which require two different ways of thinking. So for Machiavelli, morality and politics become split off, with morality being the ethics of the individual and politics being how you should act if you're a state. And this leads to the concept in political thought called raison d'etat, which is reason of the state, the way the state reasons, the way a state thinks, which is positioned as being wholly different from the way that ordinary people think. And therefore, a whole different temporal space, which the spiritual can't really come into. It's the beginning of a split between morality and politics. Mm. Of course, not everybody reads Machiavelli in precisely this way because he has these two books that are so different from each other. He has The Prince on the one hand, which is very much do all of these terrible things because they need to be done. And you have The Discourses, which is very much about trying to create you know, Republican liberty, some kind of freedom through the construction of this big republic. 
And there are, of course, lots of senses in which you could have this freedom. One, of course, is that you aren't going to be subjugated by France. So there's the freedom of the state from domination by foreign states. But there's also the freedom to seek glory individually in your life. And the Romans, of course, emphasize that to be a citizen uh, is to be free to pursue projects. And what makes you a good citizen for the Romans is that your projects ultimately serve the state and good in a moral sense, in a moral sense, not just a purely political sense. Mm. For Machiavelli, this, this kind of behavior gets described as virtue, but he makes a distinction between two different kinds of virtue, and he uses virtue oddly, right? So in discussions of virtue which are moralist, virtue is defined in terms of what orients you toward God. In the Middle Ages, it's what orients you toward God. What are the traits that you would need to have to be good in the eyes of the Christian God? Machiavelli uses virtue much more broadly to mean being kind of instrumentally rational, being good at doing whatever it is that you are trying to do. So political leaders are good at accomplishing political objectives, regardless of whether or not what they are doing orients them toward the good or to God or to something else. Right? Mm. Now, Greeks and Romans would sometimes use virtue in this, in this broader sense. But importantly, in Aristotelian teleology, every aim ultimately has to come back to the good. So even if something seems to aim at something else, that something else must have an aim which eventually points back to the good. Because the good for Aristotle is the, the ultimate telos. It's the final thing at which all things aim. And similarly for Plato, the form of the good is the thing which conditions and determines the forms, all of the lesser forms. So the form of the table is, you know, the form of the good is applied to a table. And then when you make a table, you're trying to imitate the form of the table and in that way trying to imitate the form of the good. So the Platonists and the Aristotelians, they have everything leading back toward the good. Even everything which seems to point away from morality eventually leads back to morality. And therefore, everything is embedded and enmeshed. And there is no clear separation or division between the moral and the political. Mm. No clear split. But here there has to be a split because Christian morality positions itself as a separate theological authority from the authority of temporal entities. Mm. And what's more subjects those temporal entities to the judgment of God. And so the king can't be judged by you, but is judged by God. The Romans don't do this. The Romans turn religion into an instrument of the state rather than the state into an instrument of religion. And therefore, morality is something which is politically determined, and therefore, you can't have morality without political determination. So, you see how we, we get away from that? Yeah. With Machiavelli, and he's trying to bring back you know, virtue in a Roman sense is to do with what's necessary to sustain the state. He's trying to bring that back, but he can't bring that back because of the Christian context. Hmm. 
not fully. He can only bring it back in this partial way, which creates a kind of separate normative sphere. Hmm. And even when he does that, this gets his work banned by the church. Hmm. Even this partial attempt to bring back Roman civic values Hmm. is very much crossing the line at the time. Yeah. And Machiavelli is described as a teacher of evil. And this is probably, if you've heard of Machiavelli, probably what you've heard, that he's this very, very bad guy. And Mm. this all comes out of this effort to discourage people from reading Machiavelli. But of course, people did read him anyway, even though he was illicit. And he had a huge effect on the development of political and moral theory going forward. In that even the people who want to argue that it... uh, Princes should still be virtuous in the Christian sense. Even those people start to have to admit some possibility of these things coming apart. So the people who are anti-Machiavellians after Machiavelli, they are always arguing that actually if you behave well in that moral sense, it will have good political outcomes. That actually those things do go together and don't come apart. But to make that argument, they have to make concessions to the whole terms, to the set of terms that Machiavelli is using. And so these terms start to eke their way into the discourse. This division starts to eke its way in because Machiavelli sets the terms in a way where even to disagree with him, you have to talk about this possibility of of disalignment Mm. between the state's interests and God. And so all of this work that was done by the medievals to unite these two things, Machiavelli's undoing this work. He's taking them apart again. The medievals did this because they believed it could come apart, and they thought it was very important to make sure that didn't happen again. They didn't want to be in a situation where they're getting discriminated against by the Roman state. The Roman state is stifling the spread of of Christianity and therefore preventing people's souls from being saved in their view. They needed to embed the state very heavily with God to prevent that from happening. Machiavelli is now undoing this to serve a temporal purpose, the purpose of uniting Italy to keep out the French. Mm. This is, from their point of view, very, very satanic and not at all okay. Mm. But Machiavelli is not alone in, in making these kinds of moves toward the temporal during the period. Lots of people are doing it because they can see that you know, either because they think the church is corrupt spiritually or because they can see that there is a conflict emerging between the church's doctrine and what's good for peace and stability in Europe. Mm. Dante, for instance, was especially, especially critical of the church for making all of these interventions to keep Europeans divided and fighting against each other because the Catholic church in the late Middle Ages intervened very heavily to try to prevent solid, strong European states from forming because those states would form, would become a threat to the papacy's own position within Europe. And as political theorists begin to observe this, they're saying, actually, the church is not acting in the interests of, in the political interests of the people who live in Europe. The church is trying to divide Europe and therefore trying to induce fighting And the whole point of the church is to unite everybody. So if the church is now acting as a source of division, this is a major, major problem because the legitimacy of the church is stemmed from the ostensible consensus that it creates. 
And it's the church acting in a way which deviates from this consensus forming that produces the legitimation crisis for the Catholic Church that leads to the rise of Protestantism as attempts to return to a purer kind of church that doesn't get its hands dirty in temporal affairs. But it also leads to people like Dante who make the argument, the very provocative and kind of meme argument, that the Roman emperor is actually uh, just as legitimate as the Pope because Jesus was born, as Dante argues, in De Monarchia uh, under Augustus. And Jesus would not have been born under Augustus if God did not want to endorse Augustus in some way. And therefore, Augustus is every bit as legitimate as, as the Pope. Now, that theologically is a bit of a slippery argument. Mm. But you can see that there's a political motivation here to defend politics from what is seen as a, a church that is acting against the interests of uh, the, the temporal interests of the ordinary people in Europe and of mm. the nobles in Europe who are trying to form more, more coherent polities to protect themselves. And of course, how did France unite? France itself united by setting up an alternative pope in Avignon and very much transgressing against the papacy in Rome. So mm. political unification in Europe has, was always a project that was pursued at the expense of the church and which the church opposed for that reason. And therefore, if you lived in a place like Italy that hadn't achieved that unification, you get very critical of the church because the church is keeping you politically weak and keeping you subject to invasions from the French. So that's a little bit of, of the background with Machiavelli, how we get to him, why he does what he does, where he goes, where it goes mm. from there. And you can see, you know, there's a lot of positive motivations involved for Machiavelli and Dante to do this, to make this argument for there being a kind of temporal logic that is separate and distinct from medieval, from Christian logic. Dante calls it two swords, two different swords, each equally legitimate in the eyes of God, but fundamentally mm. different and distinct with different mm. roles to play. Hmm. That need to argue for the state as having a separate source of authority, which comes out of that context, produces that split between the normativity that comes out of what the Pope tells you to do and the normativity that comes out of your actual needs. And a lot of this is on the papacy for allowing those things to come so visibly and clearly apart for so many Europeans in so many parts of medieval Europe. And so before you get the Protestant Reformation, before you get a conflict over whether the church is right about theology, before that, you get a conflict over whether politics needs to be separate from the church. First, the church loses control of the political, and then the church loses control of the theological. Yeah. So to move forward a little bit, right, if the church has lost control of the both the political and the theological, well, what happens next is that people have to come up with new ways of conceptualizing morality, because once the church loses control also of the theological, now there's a whole fight over how to restore some kind of 
moral consensus. And we start getting more moral theories. And it's in this early modern period that a lot of the moral theories that we recognize as modern liberal moral theories start to come about, where we get Kant and utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham, these guys. Of course, in this conversation, and often forgotten and marginalized, is Adam Smith. Adam Smith also has a very, very heavily articulated moral theory, which he expresses in a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And Adam Smith's theory in many ways looks not that different from an ancient theory which emphasizes the cultivation of virtue. Adam Smith argues that the thing we need to get is virtue. His conception of what virtue is is a little bit different because he's influenced by David Hume's argument that human beings are essentially passionate creatures. So unlike the Stoics who would say argue for getting rid of the passions, Smith takes a view that is not altogether different from Aristotle's, that we need to moderate the passions. And he argues that what we should do is we should imagine an impartial observer and we should imagine how the impartial observer would react to the situations we are in. And we should revise our passions up or down. So sometimes we need to have more passion than we initially have to align with the level and kind of passions which the impartial observer would have in our shoes. So it's a little bit like imagining a God and imagining what God would make of this and then trying to be that. That's how Smith conceives of it. And all of this comes alongside Smith's economic theories, which are much more famous and well-known. And a lot of people go, well, how could Smith write this whole book about how we need to have all of these virtues and then write Wealth of Nations and argue for capitalism? Hmm. And the key thing here is that by this point, liberalism has affected this split between politics and morality. The split which begins in Machiavelli as a means of solving contingent political questions that he faces in his context, that grows and grows into a philosophical position. And that philosophical position is that you are responsible for your own moral development and the state isn't going to do it for you. Why do liberals come to this position? Well, one of the reasons is that as the moral consensus breaks down in Europe, it becomes very hard for a state to commit to one particular moral view because all of these different moral views that are around in early modern Europe are very dogmatic and very particular, and they make all kinds of very controversial claims that many people don't agree with. And often these can be over little things like whether the bread that you're being handed is really the body of Christ. Uh, they can be very small and petty but very dogmatic with people asserting very loudly that things are this way or that way. And so because it was very difficult to imagine getting the kind of consensus which you had in the Middle Ages around Catholicism, they instead try to position the state as kind of a neutral, as a morally neutral entity that exists mainly to protect the sphere, the private sphere of moral development to protect a space where, wherein individuals can 
self-cultivate virtue as they understand it, with the state not prescribing particular views about how to understand it. And on the other side, the state is also protecting the market, protecting the space in which market activity happens. So the state's public role is to defend your property, and its private role is to defend a private sphere in which you can explore morality and try to build your character. And this is basically the dominant view still now. That kind of split is that public-private distinction with morality in the private and politics in the public and politics to be concerned mainly with what to do with property. Uh, That is still the basic central division, but it emerges only after this convoluted process wherein the baggage of the Middle Ages has to be dealt with. The baggage of the way that the medieval system was constructed has to be processed. Mm. And I think to a large degree, it's the feeling that the only way that you could have public morality is to have it in the way that the medieval Christians had it that leads to this liberal division. If people believed that they could reintroduce something like Greco-Roman, like a Greco-Roman synthesis between the moral and the political, if that was a live option, it might well have been done. But it didn't appear to be a live option because the Christian theories, which remained dominant even after the breakup of Catholic hegemony, the different Protestant theories, which were in play, all of them still positioned very much religion as potentially hostile to the state. The state is potentially out of alignment with religion. A lot of these Protestant movements are trying to return to the early church tradition, which sees the church as this site of rebellion against authority or resistance. And so the moral environment is not very hospitable to the reintroduction of a Greco-Roman synthesis. And so the only way that any of that stuff can be brought back in is through the back door. With Machiavelli bringing it in through politics. And then Smith, Smith making the state mainly interested in markets rather than in unification or expansion. So that's kind of the, the summary I wanted to start with for today. And from here, we can kind of talk it out. Hmm. So what, Edmund, as you're listening to that, what comes to your mind? Yeah, I, I agree that the shadow of the Middle Ages and therefore the shadow of Rome, Rome's Christianization after the crisis of the third century and Rome's fall, that, that shadow falls uh, quite long. It's a long shadow, which we perhaps have never quite got out of because the Roman Empire did change a lot, did lead to lots of institutional innovations, but also facilitated the spread of Christianity and then the adoption of it. Though the Roman Empire, of course, when Christianity was getting going, was not exactly facilitating it and indeed was persecuting Christians who the Roman Empire saw as challenging the 
polytheistic politics first legitimation story of the Roman state. But yeah, after the crisis of the third century, when the political unity of the Roman principate broke down, the way that legitimacy was restored was partly through, as we've talked about on previous episodes, making the legitimation criteria of the state more thick. So instead of saying that the state is legitimated by consensus at Concordia, by citizens partaking in the unity of the state and having reciprocal duties to one another as citizens within the state, um, which was both a, a political and simultaneously moral concep- conception, because the way philosophers legitimated the Roman state was still in terms of reason, not just collectivity, but and not just the political liberty, but the kind of philosophic liberty which is created. The space for contemplation was still important, um, say, for Stoic philosophers uh, like Seneca, for whom reason was all important. And though they differed from Plato and Aristotle in how they, they fleshed this out, the, the shadow of Greece uh, was important for Rome and Roman thinkers uh, were deeply influenced by Greek philosophy and admittedly went in lots of different directions, but they did um, adopt that Platonic Aristotelian fusion of politics and morality. Uh, It played out in lots of different ways, but the state was legitimated in both these ways at once, both, yeah, through political unity and through philosophic freedom, the the space for contemplation. And that was, I guess you could argue, it was less important in the Roman Empire than it was, say, for Plato and Aristotle. And uh, the Roman Empire was a state that, partly because it was so big, couldn't afford to um, commit itself to any particular kind of morality. It couldn't commit itself to... Uh, you know the criteria of Plato's Republic. Um, it, it couldn't even commit to all of, you know, say, Aristotle's philosophy, um, or even of the philosophers within the state. It was uh, a diverse political community which had to draw on a lot of different ideas at once. But as it did so, it didn't separate politics from morality. It managed to keep them together. Because everything still had to be committed to the Roman state. Everything had to have that civic orientation. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that comes out of all of this is that in Machiavelli's period, you haven't privatized morality because morality is still in the hands of the church. The church gets morality. The state gets politics. And then as the consensus around morality breaks down, there's no ability to have an institution which adjudicates moral disputes anymore. The Romans just didn't have such an institution and didn't feel they needed one, provided that all of the different moral theories still maintain an orientation to the state. Mm. And so for the Romans, there was no need to have a separate spiritual authority that was non-political. In the case of 
Machiavelli and Dante, because they're trying to get out from under the church, they have to come up with a political authority which is separate from the church and therefore separate from the moral. Hmm. But when that moral authority breaks down further through the Reformation, there is never a public authority which is restored, which has moral authority. And for the Romans, there would not need to be one because you would have this political authority and the different moralities would still be minimally political. But going forward, what we instead did is we privatized the moral. So we didn't reintegrate the moral back into the political. We didn't return to something like that Roman synthesis. Hmm. Instead, we privatized the moral. And that's what we see with Smith. We see this privatization of morality. Hmm. And you see it in Benjamin Constant, too, who we talked about before, who argues that modern liberty is this kind of private space mm. where you can pursue your own projects. And, and Constant has this worry that will people really use that space to become better people or will they waste it? Because the thing about having a private sphere for moral development is that you're trusting individuals in that private sphere to morally develop on their own. And some theorists have proposed private civil society organizations to, to have a plurality of churches and clubs and other things that will play that development role that people can choose to be part of. But there's a trust there that those organizations will form of their own accord, those private associations will form of their own accord and provide the moral education that the state is not going to take responsibility for. Hmm. And that enables the state to content itself with managing markets and managing the defense of the realm. It, it allows the state to be this night watchman state, which defends your property both from people internally who would steal from you and from people externally who would invade the territory. Hmm. And the state gets kind of stuck in this minimal role, which is not ever how the state was thought of at any prior point in history. In the medieval period, the state is servicing God. And in the Roman period, the state is a means to the good. But also, you can't have the good without the state. So your conception of the state is tempered by the needs of the state. Hmm. And you have a kind of virtuous circle where you need the state to get at the good and you need the good to get at the state because without the state, there can be no good. And without the good, there can be no state. That mm. virtuous loop in the ancient world, it's broken when the church subordinates politics to morality. Mm. And then we've not been able to get them back. And so when Machiavelli wants to get politics back in, his only way of doing this is to introduce it as a separate realm. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, he continues to show, perform deference to the church's domination of the moral. And going forward, the church's domination of the moral will continue to be challenged, but those challenges will never seek a reunion with the state. Well, I, that's not true. Many of the challenges did seek a reunion with the state, but couldn't get, couldn't get there couldn't get a sufficient level of consensus. There were certainly efforts to have the state running churches in the West, but that wasn't possible. And I think it wasn't possible because people had become so accustomed to the idea that the state is subordinate to morality that to flip it would feel very vulgar. 
And so even attempts to, say, put the king in charge of the church, as occurred in England through the, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, that wasn't satisfying to people who were accustomed to the king answering to religion. Hmm. And that wasn't possible, even though there were Christian churches in Eastern Europe that did do this. There were Christian churches where the emperor the Byzantine emperor or the Russian czar were at the head of the church. But they had done that since antiquity. In the East, the Roman Empire continued, and since it continued, it was able to continue to subordinate Christianity to it Mm. for a very long time. And because in the West that was broken, it was not possible to restore it. It was no longer possible to legitimate a state which was not answerable to a church. And the only way it became possible was to make the state a kind of referee, to position the state as a neutral figure, which curates these zones where private individuals construct their moralities Mm. through voluntary associations. This kind of stripped down, ostensibly neutral state. But of course, the state isn't neutral because the state is committed to a market system, and that market system inevitably affects and influences the kinds of moral beliefs that people come to have. Yeah. And so while you can say that the state isn't going to take responsibility for moral development, it's still going to be the case that the state is going to heavily shape the moral development which occurs and the kinds of people that we become, if only by endorsing the market system and the system of private property and the way that system develops and the distributive consequences that that system has. Hmm. So you can't really get out of the state having a serious impact on the way people are constructed. But in saying that you can, in arguing that the state is just playing this night watchman role, you can sell the state to people as necessary for their moral cultivation. Hmm. And in a way, this is a a kind of a a strange approximation of what the Romans are doing, right? Because you're saying with a night watchman state, you're saying that the state is necessary to protect you so that you can form private associations and pursue your own personal development. Hmm. But in saying all, all the state does is protect you, it doesn't substantively try to pursue conceptions of the good. That prohibits the state from giving you a lot of the things that you would need to really be able to do that. Hmm. You would need to privately acquire those things on your own. Things like a house and food and all of that stuff. You you need those, those basics to be able to exercise leisure for Aristotle. And since the state isn't going to provide those things for you, you have to figure out within the market system how to privately acquire enough of those things to have the provision that's necessary to then pursue moral development. And along the way, you have to not be confused by those things into thinking that they themselves are the goal of life. So if the state makes it your job to acquire the resources that you need to morally develop yourself, you have to make it your aim to acquire those things. And then once you have them, you have to realize that they're not the point of life And go do it yourself some other way. And it turns life into a kind of personal journey. Mm. And I think a lot of existentialist theory 
is the culmination of this in Western thought, this kind of personal journey that you're on, this personal spiritual journey that is very personal, very specific to you as an individual. You know, it's not subordinated to the church or to a church, but it's this very personal journey that you go on. And it also produces all of the responsibilizing and yelling and screaming that we get in our contemporary politics, because anytime somebody disagrees with you, it's because they are not appropriately on the personal journey that they're supposed to be on. They're not doing the things that are necessary Mm. to morally improve themselves. And that can be, oh, you're not being a good person. You need to educate yourself. You need to read the right books. It can also be, hey, you don't have a job or you don't have the resources to build this kind of life. So the, the whole, like, the get a job and educate yourself impulses in the contemporary discourse are really two sides of the same coin because for mm-hmm. Aristotle, of course, you need resources and you need education <laughs> to be a virtuous person. Yeah. So in saying get those things, you're telling the individual you privately are responsible for your own character development. Yeah, yeah. All the state is going to do is protect your life and your property through a system of property rights that it's going to position as neutral, you know, like a Hayekian market that is positioned as a set of neutral rules. Yeah, yeah. But of course, if you look at Plato or you look at the Romans, those market, the, the, the way you structure the distribution of stuff in society is never positioned as a neutral. In fact, the way that Plato distinguishes regime types is by how that stuff is structured. Yeah, to yeah. introduce slavery, to introduce oligarchy, to introduce private property. These are the things which fundamentally change the regime type for Plato. And each kind of regime produces a different kind of person with a different kind of soul or a different kind of organization of soul. And so for Plato, you can't escape that the way you structure the state is going to construct the subject. And there is no neutral set of economic affairs that you can adopt that creates a, an even playing field in the private sphere, in the moral sphere. Mm. But the liberal state was, I think, very effective for a long time at persuading people that it had built this neutral mm. and that it was really offering them neutral choice. Yeah. At least, at least to enough of the people, enough of the time for it to go on without too much disturbance. Yeah. And there have always been demands on the liberal state for it to further extend some of the things that it promises. But I think even among some of the most vicious critics of the liberal state from, say, the anarchist perspective, there is an acknowledgement on their part that moral development is something that people are personally responsible for. And there may be arguing over the extent to which the state should support that personal development. Hmm. Some arguing. But the thing is that a lot of these guys are going to responsibilize and go after individuals in our contemporary context. Even when those individuals manifestly don't have the things that those people think that, you know, individuals distributively need to be okay. Yeah. So a lot of people, even though they think, yeah, the state should provide health care, the state should provide housing, they also go after people who are workers who are living precarious lives of instability for not having correct positions on political questions. Yeah. 
you know, for Plato, it goes without saying, if you have an oligarchy or you have a democracy, that you're going to have people who are going to be morally and spiritually not okay in lots of different ways. Yeah. And you would need to change the kind of system that you have before you could really expect the people to change. And most likely, the way that you have undermined the character of the population will itself determine the way that the political institutions develop from here. Hmm. So for Plato, once you get into a vicious cycle where you are destroying the morality of your people by giving them perverse incentives, that will just make them worse and worse over time. And as they get worse, they will demand worse political institutions. Yeah. But a lot of people in the contemporary discourse don't see that as, uh, as what's going on because they don't see politics and morality as connected in that way. They still think that no matter how suboptimal the political institutions are, you can take responsibility for your own moral development. Yeah. And that's kind of the Christian idea in that late Roman Empire. No matter how suboptimal the Roman Empire is, you can be a good person and go to heaven. Mm. Right? Yeah. Or you know, in, in the Stoic tradition, you know, no matter how bad things are going, it, you know, you don't have to react to that stuff in a way that makes it bad for you. You have the ability to somehow transcend the context. Mm. And I don't think most of the theorists who were articulating this division originally intended for us to interpret this division in this way, in this very unrealistic way. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think Smith would have thought, well, maybe we can have a private space where people will develop morally. Yeah. And I think Smith and liberals who follow Smith would be disturbed at that not coming about or not working out in the way that they would have hoped mm. and concerned about what that means for the economy. Uh, and similarly, I don't think Machiavelli thought that we ought to privatize morality mm. in the way that has since, you know, that this has since been done. You know, for Machiavelli, ordering religions was important and having uh, you know, he says that among the most glorious people are those who org order religions and create structure to um, ways in which we pursue truth. Mm. But over time, we've started to take this split not as a pragmatic, this is how we deal with the fact that we have a church and that people are convinced that the church has got some kind of line straight to God. It stopped, it stopped being a pragmatic way of dealing with the fallout of the Middle Ages and become its own thing. Yeah. And it makes a lot of unrealistic demands on people. Yeah. I, I guess there's a risk in attributing the causality back to Rome and the Christianization of Rome and then the fall of Rome, because that is, I guess, very important uh, preliminary to this story. But of course, it's, uh, it's interesting that Machiavelli is writing in the early 16th century, uh, that this wasn't happening in the 11th century or earlier. You have Augustine writing... Um, centuries earlier, but you still don't have the um, the clarity and the uh, 
rigidity, perhaps, of the politics-morality distinction that Machiavelli has. It's still not taken to be the case that politics and morality are as at war with each other as Machiavelli thinks, because, of course, the purpose of the medieval switch of the ancient fusion of politics and morality and the you know, the prioritisation of politics over morality in, in Rome, th- though politics and morality were fused, the state took precedence. You know, the purpose of flipping that, so to put morality on top in the legitimation stories of medieval states uh, and, of, of course, the, the late Roman Empire, um, you know, was you know, not to set them at war with each other, but to unify everything within the moral. So instead of unifying everything within the political, the idea is that everything could be unified in Christian belief. And so there isn't that uh, same degree of tension, same degree of separation that you get in Machiavelli, um, perhaps, even though Augustine distinguishes the city of man from the city of God, uh, it's not taken to be the case that these two are necessarily always at war with each other, as Machiavelli is quite clear um, that in order to practice virtue as a politician and indeed as a citizen within a republican state, it is necessary to uh, subjugate justice to uh, to political to transgress concerns. against morality, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. a big difference. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just, and, yeah, yeah. It's not just that Machiavelli prioritizes politics, but also that he separates politics and morality further than Augustine, uh, other late Roman thinkers, and medieval thinkers did. Yeah, for the earlier medieval thinkers and for for Augustine, it's very important to prevent this split from coming into being. And mm. to orient the state toward God, and to have the state be a, a city of you know, a city where there's a common love yeah. for God, and for the city to lead people toward salvation rather than preventing them from getting it yeah. by leading them away. Uh, the city will never be as good as heaven. The city will never live up to uh, or be a, a substitute for heaven. But the city can help people get to heaven. Yeah. And early on. I think there was more, it was easier to argue for this unity under the church because in the early Middle Ages, as the Roman Empire collapsed, there was this massive fragmentation Mm. and the church really did act as a unifying force. If you're a king who's come into an area and you're trying to get some legitimacy, the church will give it to you provided that you support it and subordinate yourself to it. And it was a good deal because you had a lot of citizens who were Christian. You had a lot of subjects who were Christian and you needed to find a way to get them to buy in. And the church would help you do that. Mm. And so when you have these baby states that are very young and they're trying to form, they're trying to get going, the church offered them a helping hand. Mm. And it was genuinely helpful to them. That's why they took it. That's why so many kings bought into this. Okay, I'll be crowned by the Pope. I'll be recognized by the Pope. And through the Pope, I'll be recognized by God as far as my subjects are concerned. And that's going to help me because I'm trying to establish order and stability in the aftermath of the fall of Rome. Mm. But as those states mature over the life of the Middle Ages and get more centralized, 
and begin to go, hey, why, why do I have to continue to take it from the Pope? Maybe we can change the relationship a little bit. Maybe we can kind of mark off different territory here. Hmm. Uh, the papacy does not respond favorably to that. And indeed, it goes so far as to try to sabotage these unification projects wherever they're occurring. Hmm. And it's this papal overreach into the temporal. I think if you were trying to make an argument from a Catholic point of view, you would argue that it was the papal overreach into the temporal Hmm. during that period, which caused the collapse of the consensus. Hmm. And that that was a mistake in large part because it, it destroyed the very thing that was leading so many Christians in the Middle Ages uh, to lead lives that were in alignment with church teaching. Yeah. It was the church's own actions which led to the collapse of the political consensus, which led to Protestantism and these heresies in the eyes of the church, Mm. um, which from their perspective led a lot of people down a terrible path. And it was their own political overreach which produced that. And so that's why it takes so long for this to happen. In the earlier centuries of the Middle Ages, there is still a need to get this unity back. And the church is very instrumental in helping the new, the new kings in Europe get established. Hmm. But it's, it's kind of like a parent who you know, raises you to maturity but then can't let go and continues to try to tell you what to do in your 20s. Hmm. And just, you know, you argue with your parent, you want to get along with your parent, they're your parent, you love them, but they just keep overreaching and just keep overreaching and they don't get it. They don't get that now they have to get out of the way a little bit. Hmm. The church was a bad parent to the kingdoms of Europe. Yeah. Not in the beginning, but when they reached maturity. Yeah, yeah, and it's the fact that the kingdoms are over time developing more coherent political systems as they start to engage in economic and particularly military competition with each other, that this starts to strain the legitimation stories of a unified Christendom. Yeah, especially once the papal states start themselves becoming geopolitically aggressive, becoming themselves Machiavellian um, in a way. that Yes, during the period when Machiavelli is writing, the papacy itself tries to acquire territory in Europe, uh, potentially tries to maybe even unite Italy under itself uh, mm. politically. Cesare Borgia gets a lot of discussion in The Prince is this papal figure who's trying to unite Europe and, of course, is transgressing against. uh, He's the son of of Pope Alexander. He is, of course, transgressing against church doctrine constantly to affect this political unification. And I guess you see this in the raison d'état literature that develops in the uh, century or so following Machiavelli's death, that lots of states, sorry, lots of thinkers um, start trying to uh, f- yeah, figure out what the implications of uh, 
Not only Machiavelli's return to a Roman priority of politics, but Machiavelli's um, novel separation or expansion of the separation between politics and morality. And so, yeah, lots of reason of state theorists like Lipsius and Botero try to main tr- tr- try to have some kind of um, the priority of politics occasionally, um, but they don't want to separate morality and politics as much as um, Machiavelli does. They want to say how there is some space for justice. Um, and this is perhaps uh, something where, uh, despite there being so many theorists pitted against Machiavelli, uh, in the end, Machiavelli does win. Morality and politics do separate and do go their separate ways. And yeah, I guess the question then is why does, why does morality get internalised to the individual? Because of course, after Machiavelli, it's not... Because he, he wins and he loses, doesn't he? Yeah. Because Machiavelli is able to get politics out from under morality. Yeah. But eventually politics becomes completely watered down. Right, right. He loses in that sense, yeah. When morality becomes privatized and politics just becomes in charge of curating the space for private agony through the market and through civil society organizations, you know, private struggles... Uh, yeah. There are no public struggles anymore. Yeah. It, and Machiavelli was all about public struggles. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an irony because Machiavelli uses the politics morality separation in order to put politics on top. He wants to return to Rome by um putting morality and politics on separate paths or at least justice and politics and uh, justice is the virtue which is uh, closest the to first morality. step to yeah. flipping the relationship again would be to make politics independent from morality. First, you yeah. have to get politics out from under it before you could effect a return to that. And maybe Machiavelli would have liked to have eventually effected a return to that. Yeah, yeah. Roman dynamic, but it's not what happens. Instead, the separation, which begins as a way of restoring politics, turns into the bane of the political. Yeah, I guess if if Machiavelli uh, that had uh, succeeded in inspiring the Medici's to um, t- to whom he d- dedicated um, his um, his book, The Prince, um, because the Medici's were in power in Florence at the time, and he wanted to uh, get on their side, perhaps get back in employment uh, and wanted them to make a bid to conquer Italy as Cesare had tried to do. And if that had succeeded, um, there's the question of then what would happen to Europe. I mean, if there had been some, you know, as Charles V did later on in the 16th century, try to... uh, form a broader empire which tied the Holy Roman Empire to 
Spain and Italian possessions, if something like that attempt had succeeded in unifying Europe, in, in other words, if the multi-state system had been overcome and you had gotten back to some kind of empire or political unity, then perhaps in that case, the, this new political unity would have to justify itself in terms of um, creating a space for Morality. I mean, would that conception be a, rely on a public-private separation? It's it, it it's difficult to know because, uh, of course, if if Europe had been unified or reunified in the in, in the Renaissance, uh, then then that would have immediately changed a lot of the calculations of states. Um, I guess one question is: Would that political unity um, have stopped the next thing that tore politics and morality asunder um, by pulling morality into individuality, which is the rise of commerce, which was already beginning then, of course, but kicked off in Britain in Smith's time and then spread as other states adopted um, industrialization um, and commercialization uh, well i think i think to kind of try to answer that question i think that if europe had reunified prior to the introduction of capitalism that it would have come to look a lot like china yeah you know, a lot like ming china at that time and i think that a big part of the reason why it doesn't come to look like ming china is the catholic church and that's the distinctive thing about the church. The church helps put states back together in Europe, but it stops those states from reuniting. Okay. So the Catholic Church has this bizarre historical role, and I think that this is one of the unique things about Europe, is that it had a church which was not subordinated to a state for a very long period of time, which had an interest in keeping states on its side, but also in keeping its power over those states. So the way that the Catholic Church did this was to support to some degree reunification, but also to prevent that reunification from proceeding enough that its own power position in Europe would be threatened. It wanted to keep itself as the thing which plays the states off against each other. Mm. And so because of the Catholic Church, you don't get a new China-type empire or Roman-type empire in Europe. But you do get a, a group of multiple different states, each mm. with an adequate level of centralization to compete with each other. Mm. And I think the Catholic Church has a kind of underappreciated historical role in keeping Europe in this weird middle space mm. for a long time. Mm. Yeah. And that's the thing, because the individual states had legitimation stories that were contingent upon acceptance of the church. Mm. It was quite hard to get out of this system where the states are being played off against each other. Okay. Why would it not be compatible with Christen with the Catholic legitimation story of the Middle Ages to have political unity? 
Because as soon as you try to pursue that level of unity, the Catholic Church would start looking for ways to undermine that unity right. because that unity would allow the emperor to put themselves ahead of the pope again. Right. As right. was still the case in the in the Byzantine Empire. In the neighboring Eastern Roman Empire, it was still the case that the Byzantine emperor told the patriarch of Constantinople how to run the Orthodox Church all the time. Hmm. Uh, the papacy was acutely aware that that's how it goes when you've got a united empire mm. and did everything it could to prevent that from happening. And that prevented peace and stability from returning to Western Europe, kept Western Europe in endemic conflict, but also produced the growth dynamics, which eventually led to capitalism. So it's, it's a kind of poison chalice. A double-edged sword. You are getting, on the one hand, this competition among the states, which leads to a lot of technological development, and eventually, in the long, long run, to a rise in living standards. But in the meantime, you have this endemic war and conflict in Western Europe. And this is really, it's still the case that the kind of two sides of the Western experience are, are on the one hand, to produce fabulous technological development unprecedented in human history, and on the other hand, to constantly be torn apart by infighting, Hmm. to constantly fight giant destructive wars with that technology. Hmm. And in the medieval and early modern period, the church is very actively the thing that causes that to happen. Hmm. But as you move forward, the church loses that position, but the responses to the church end up playing the same role. Yeah. Of preventing any kind of reunification from occurring and therefore preventing any kind of sustained peace from occurring. Hmm. And that produces a lot of dynamism, a lot of rapid change, but also a lot of death. Yeah. And a lot of heartbreak. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I guess that explains, with reference to the role of the papacy, explains why Charles V had to capture the Pope in the sack of Rome in 1527 in order to stop the papal states from trying to challenge him and and the same is true for france as yeah. france unified it needed a pope in avignon yeah yeah it needed a fake pope that it controlled <laughs> yeah yeah political unification projects always succeeded at the expense of the papacy and never with its help yes yeah. The only time when the papacy seemed to support in any way a major unification project is Charlemagne's. And why does it support Charlemagne? Well, firstly, Charlemagne has himself coronated by the Pope and is expressly performing deference to the papacy. Mm. And secondly, because the empire of Charlemagne is a way of trying to protect Europe from is Islam mm. and then also from you know, the Vikings, the, the bigger states that the papacy tolerates during the very, very difficult period of the 9th and 10th centuries. They're mm -hmm. tolerated because they are protecting all of Christendom from paganism and Islam at a point in European history when the Western Christianity appears to be teetering, when it's been reduced to 
France and Italy and Germany and not much else. Yeah. Period of, of striking vulnerability for the church, not to internal challenge, but to external challenge. And so, of course, it's during that period that the papacy tolerates the greatest level of political unity. Mm. Yeah. To protect the whole space from what's outside. And it's in the periods when Western Europe is more secure that the papacy gets more interested in trying to protect or expand its power internally within Western Europe. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what happens shortly before Machiavelli? The Reconquista. Right. Yeah. I guess it makes sense why in the 16th century that there wasn't as much from 1527 opposition uh, by the Papal States to Charles V as you might expect, partly because there is the the awareness of the Ottomans uh, in the late 1520s being at the gates of Vienna. And so there is some fear there of what would happen if Europe became too divided. Of course, it doesn't stop European states from uh, fighting each other a lot. Um, Right. The church is trying to nurse this careful balance, but eventually it gets the balance wrong. It keeps parts of Europe too divided and causes those parts to take too much abuse. And Italy is a great example where because Italy has been kept divided, Italy is just so badly abused by France during the Italian wars. Uh, I think a really a major factor in disrupting the Italian Renaissance. Hmm. Mm. And when the papacy's interventions are allowing the disunited regions of Europe to be badly damaged by the united regions, now you're in trouble. Of course, it's not as if the papacy supported France unifying and then coming into Italy. But once that happens, it then becomes imperative for the states surrounding France to do something similar. And so you might have been able to tolerate the Pope's attempts to prevent unification when there were no unified states in Europe. But once France emerges as a unified state, now everybody's going to want to copy France and everyone's going to need to copy France, because if you don't copy France, France is coming for you. Hmm. And it's not really the case that everybody succeeds in copying France until after the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. For a long time in Europe, the French got out of hand, the Pope lost control of the French, and the French are now marauding and threatening everybody else. Mm. And there are major, you know, the War of Spanish Secession in which the King of France tries to install a member of his family on the throne of Spain. Mm. For a while, the Pope is playing the Habsburgs, you know, like Charles V, off against the French Bourbons. Yeah. And trying to use them in a kind of Cold War dynamic. Yeah, yeah. But the Pope is having to do that because the Habsburgs and the Bourbons have gotten too big and gotten out of hand. Mm. Both of those families have managed to push the papacy around, and now the papacy is reduced to trying desperately 
to play them off against each other. Yeah, yeah. And as it becomes clear that the Bourbons are going to win that conflict, other states in Europe have to take action and create competitive nation states to match up with France. And so as you begin to enter the 19th century and you know, the Napoleonic era and beyond, the papacy just becomes irrelevant. It is now clear that the only way to compete with France is to do what France does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's the role of France that uh, when Charles secures the agreement of the papacy at the Council of Trent in 1545, uh, it's because of France's role in assisting the Schmalkaldic Protestant League that Charles V is stopped. And at this point, there wasn't much likelihood of him succeeding in um, any ambitions for uh, creating a European-wide empire. Um, But it is telling that it's this that leads him to abdicate in 1557. Um, And there dies the hope in that century um, of political unity because after Charles died, because he was only inheriting all these territories um, both as king of Spain and as having control over lots of territories in Central Europe um, that after he dies the territories get split again um, because he was only inheriting them. And, and, and so when he dies, the, the territories can no longer, longer be um, unified by uh, Yes, you get Spain. the Spanish Habsburgs and the Austrian Habsburgs who yeah. become two different cadet branches yeah. of the family that Charles V was head of. Yeah, I, I think it's very telling that France was so Machiavellian as to use the Protestants against Charles V. And yeah. that's really where it was by that point. They're, they're really, the, the unity of Europe under Christianity was gone. And unless there was going to be political unity, it wasn't going to happen. Mm. Yeah, I guess. Okay, <laughs> but. Yeah, one yeah possible ex- exception would be moments like the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, where the, the Europeans were trying to stop the Ottoman Empire. Um, and there are moments like this when it looks like there's unity, but of course, you know, <laughs> only against an external threat. Yeah. it's managed. Uh, and you, they only want enough unity that they can keep out the external invaders. Mm. They don't want. Uh, a unity which is beyond that because that would compromise the position of the church. I think it is the unique element in European history. The Catholic Church as this extra state entity which intervenes to prevent reunification. Hmm. It's the most bizarre feature of Western European history. If you look around the world, you will not find another place that has this level of centralized states submitting to a religious leader who does not exercise direct temporal authority 
It's extremely bizarre. And I think it is it is principally responsible for Western Europe developing faster than the rest of the world, because it, it the papacy kept them in this liminal situation where you had a level of centralization, but not unity and therefore constant struggle among the states for supremacy with each other. Yeah, because the Catholic Church had this legitimating role for states, because, yeah, with with these legitimation stories, they had to make sure that they were making the story tenable by, yeah, doing what the church wanted. But at the same time, there was this Machiavellian instinct working its way through the state system, you know, such that Charles V could just go and kidnap the Pope. Um, and yeah, 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 and such that the French could not only ally with the um, uh, Schmalkaldic League, but also could um, act friendly towards uh, the Ottomans, towards uh, Soleiman the Magnificent, um, because yeah, yeah, we get a lot of that early uh, early modern political theory begins to treat the Arab and Muslim states as part of the civilized world. Yeah, uh, yeah. Early international relations theory is expressly written to begin including Muslim states in the conception of what counts as civilized. Yes. At the expense, of course, of indigenous people in the Americas mm. and sub-Saharan Africa yes. and East Asia. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, they're framing it as an expansion of the realm of moral concern. But today, when we look back at it, we go, wow, this is very deliberately excluding a lot of groups of people. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's not... It is that the the church plays this important role, um, both uh, thanks to its central role in states' legitimation stories... Um, but also due to its general economic power in Europe, because it did have quite a lot of um, resources as this extra state entity with footholds in a lot of states, Um, but also its military power. With kings having agreed that people are going to tithe and people are going to give resources to the church. So there's an economic basis there. Yeah, yeah. That cathedrals and, and churches are mechanisms for funneling the surplus of Europe to the papacy, mm. a large part of that surplus, yeah. which enables it to stay competitive in the temporal space yeah, yeah. with the states and with the leaders of states. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, we have the double legacy, because on the one hand, we have the church in the period when it's dominant, preventing the return of, a, of an empire, of a unified state, mm. and therefore encouraging this agonistic development race and the scientific development, which eventually emerges from that. At the same time, the way in which we got out from under the church through the splitting off of politics from morality I think continues to greatly influence contemporary politics because we are we still make demands that individuals get good that they get a job that they educate themselves that they learn to code we still make these demands that people take responsibility for their own development mm. and we still do that because we have decided that if the state does that, then the state is 
acting like the church and we don't have enough agreement for the state to act like the church. Yeah. Yeah. So even providing for the basics of what you would need in, in the Roman state, you know, even providing people with food, you know, with, with the basics of what you need becomes controversial in our society because um, we, we have this impulse to think that people need to take care of their own cultivation and development. Mm. Yeah. And it's been very subversive, I think, in the context of modern thought, uh, modern liberal thought. It's been very subversive to reintroduce the idea that there ought to be public goods. Yes. So common to the ancient world and to a large degree in the medieval world. You know, bread doles were very common, public baths, public roads, you know, all of this stuff that was built up. And to, the idea now that we ought to expand that to you know, healthcare and education in the contemporary context, it's, it's a very radical idea. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it makes the state responsible again for giving people the things they need to explore what they believe in and what they care about. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, it's, yeah, the product of two, yeah, broad factors working their way through. First, political economy and then also political thought in the past few centuries that we are where we are. There's firstly Machiavelli's separation between politics and morality, uh, the product of admittedly of the change in the Roman state's legitimation story after the crisis of the third century, and then the continuation of this morality first religious legitimation story in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, as well as interstate competition um, after the fall of Rome, as states became more centralized, became more centralized through the Middle Ages. Uh, but also, there's this Smithian separation between the state and the subject, because of course, even for Machiavelli, uh, it's not the case that individual morality is in any way. Uh, a significant factor. Um, it's even the case that individual citizens for Machiavelli uh, ought in a, re in a republican state to care about, about glory and seeing their liberty in political terms rather than individual terms. Um, and he's not only got away from morality, but he's not yet in a place where individual morality is even an important part of legitimating the state. He's not saying, oh, look, we can have politics for all of us and then individually we can have our moral codes. Machiavelli really does care about uh, the politics. And you could say he's quite moralistic about that point, that politics yeah, is what matters. Yeah, and that's the mistake that I think a lot of people make when they read Mach. When they read Machiavelli, they think that um, the emphasis on liberty is similar to Smith's, to Smithian liberty or to liberty in in the contemporary liberal world, yeah. but that's liberty to be a citizen, right. to perform civic duties, to right. pursue glory in a Republican sense. It's an antique kind of liberty. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, not the kind of you know, freedom from the state, you know, not being told what to do by the state, existing in some kind of neutral or private sphere. Mm. Not that kind of thing. It's a different understanding of liberty in Machiavelli. And that's the sense in which Machiavelli isn't modern. Machiavelli lays the groundwork for what will, however, become modern thought by extracting politics from that subordinating role. And then as we move forward, you know, there's been a lot of interesting discussion of, because of course we have some people who want us to get beyond this night watchman state that doesn't take a role. Uh, And a lot of German thought in the 19th and 20th century focused on the state as creating the conditions under which you could, as, as Max Weber put it, choose among many gods and demons. Mm. You know, that y- there could be a lot of different substantive values in our society in the same way that there are a lot of different philosophies in the Roman world. Uh, and that's, the state's role is to create a situation where you're free to choose, mm. provided that those different values all keep you committed to sustaining the state, which gives you that freedom to choose from among those values. And so for Weber, there's a maturity that's needed Mm. to then go and pick stuff which is still consistent with maintaining the state, which creates the opportunity to choose. And I think that that is kind of the way that we start to build back towards something which properly unites morality with politics Mm. in reminding us that the state has to create the conditions under which we can choose our philosophy and really choose it. That means that we need to have time to think and we need to have the education to know how to use the time well and we need to have the basic resources to have the time. These are things that the state needs to do to create a situation where we can choose values or choose philosophical uh, positions. And in the Roman state, there was not an effort to extend that choice to everybody because the Romans didn't have that kind of egalitarianism. But -hmm. it was acknowledged that for citizens, that that was part of the package that you were getting, that if you're a free citizen, you are getting, you have enough property that that stuff is provided for and you can explore the truth, or you can pursue glory in in trying to aid the state. And of course, in thinking about the truth, you would realize that the state's important and you would try to defend it. You would get some glory in the course of that. Uh, But if you're a real philosopher, you'll you'll remember that the glory of helping the state is ultimately in service of the good, rather than uh, the good being in service of the glory that you get when you help the state. Hmm. And I think that Weber, in arguing that we needed... The maturity to, you know, we needed the ability to pick substantive values and the maturity to have values that still correspond with having some kind of order and are still consistent with having some kind of order. That Weberian move is a move in the direction of some kind of reunion. Mm. And maybe in that sense, it's in the direction of some kind of golden mean. Uh, Mm. But I think institutionally, Weber really struggled to articulate a way in which that might be done. And the institutions that he came up with, uh, that he participated in coming up with, the Weimar Republic, manifestly failed to do that. Yeah, yeah. I guess one precondition for having a golden mean is not seeing the different poles, the different extremes as irreconcilable. 
because if they're ir- irreconcilable, then you, there's no space between them. They're just um, that they're, they're so opposite. The individual and collective are so opposite to each other that they must always go their separate ways. And you know, there is, as well as this politics morality division, this Smithian division between individual and collective between the private and public spheres where morality is internalized to the to the private sphere um and where uh, smith put it, puts it in a, the theory of moral sentiments the the esteem and admiration which every impartial spectator conceives for the real merit of those spirited magnanimous and high-minded persons is as it is a just and well-founded sentiment, so it is a steady and permanent one, and altogether independent of their good or bad fortune, end quote. And so Smith is trying to argue that we can have uh, feelings of moral approbation and disapprobation, uh, praising and blaming, not just actions, but in some way the character of individuals for their actions uh, without referring back to the state. And of course... The... Or even to their good fortune, right? right? So even to whether they have property, whether they have any of the basics. Yeah, it's a very strange sentence. And it, it, I think it means that Smith's argument is in some sense incomplete. And I think the way in which liberalism tries to make this complete is by um, doubling down on the notion of the individual as um, metaphysically separate from the universe on some level, as free-floating. And I, I think this is why Smith's account um, of the, 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 um, the individuality of morality, the subjectivity of the good, uh, the, the notion that the good isn't this um, common, collective, objective process or pursuit, but that the, the good is something that we only can pursue as individuals in our separate private spaces. You know that that relies on yeah this notion that it, it's right and it's okay to hold individuals responsible. Um, for stuff. And therefore, the individual has got to be transcendent. The in- individual has to transcend the context. Yeah. And I think there's there's a little bit of metaphysical dualism in this. The idea that you have a kind of soul which stands apart from the physical world yes. and therefore stands apart from your genetics and stands apart from your socialization, yes. stands apart from the kind of city or the kind of state you grow up in. And therefore, you are responsible for the condition of your soul. You're responsible for overcoming all of this. Yeah, yeah. With a, through a kind of soul, a soul power. Yeah, and um, yeah, of course that's difficult to secure in a more secular age. And I feel that the thinker who, on whom this whole notion of individual responsibility um, rises or falls, uh, is probably Immanuel Kant. Um, though Kant did have a uh, deeply religious, pietist upbringing, um, Kant was formulating a morality that is drawn on nowadays uh, by people who uh, don't regard themselves as primarily 
uh, theological in orientation. It's it's used a lot by uh, secular philosophers too. Um, and it, yes, yeah. the Kantian conception of the person in which the person is uh, presupposed to be autonomous. Yeah, and the reason the person can be autonomous for Kant is that you know it's funny because. Kant argues that the person, of course, can't be autonomous in the phenomenal world, in the world of experience, because we live in, uh, Kant admits, uh, this world uh, of um, causation, uh, the phenomenal world, the world which we experience is a world where uh, A causes B, um, where uh, there is no role of the individual, because the individual themselves is the product of lots of prior causal chains. They're just one, one little cog within the broader machine, um, and you know, Kant manages to uh, try to justify um, you know, putting autonomy at the centre by saying the phenomenal world is separate from the noumenal world. And the noumenal world is the world behind our perceptions, behind what we can experience, where though we can't know that we're free in this noumenal world, um, we, uh, we, can, um, we can postulate as, as a, uh, a postulate of practical reason that we are free, because morality for Kant requires individual responsibility, because Kant is operating in this context where Morality has been separated from politics. Um, morality is being internalised to uh, individuality, to the private sphere, and this has to be justified in some way. And so Kant says, well, because it ought to be the case, we might as well say it is the case. And uh, you know, apart from all of the many critiques we could offer, <laughs> um, we could say there's no empirical evidence for such a noumenal world, or we can make a lot of critiques. I think one of the best grounds for saying that Kant is mistaken is that his very theory uh, basically says that this is wrong because in the Critique of Pure Reason, his uh, most secular epistemological work, Kant says that causation, that the phenomenal world uh, and the laws which it abides is basically um, only uh, seeable through our subjective lenses and Kant makes causation a subjective thing. He says we can't really know that time and space and categories like causation are objective. Um, um, we can only know it through our subjective lenses. Um, but if causation is only phenomenal and only something that we see subjectively, then even if we are free in the noumenal world, there can be no causal interaction between one realm and the other. Uh, there can be no causal power attributed to us in that noumenal realm because Kant has just made causation um, subjective. And this, of course, this is a classic uh, soul-body problem that lots of people have got in, gotten into. Descartes um, tried to make the soul really important in his account of free will, and it's difficult to see how the soul and body interact, so there's a problem there. But with Kant, there's an obvious contradiction between his two central works, his epistemology, epistemology and his moral theory. And it's just so ironic that he uses individualism, subjectivism, to try to justify Smith's individualism, <laughs> but it's just self-undermining. It ends up being... I, I don't uh, know if he's necessarily responding to Smith there in of particular. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. 
the general but, context. But yeah. yes, yeah. In the general context, once this division between morality and politics gets made, you somehow have to argue for how the individual can morally construct themselves in a world which, in many ways, is inadequate. Mm. And the only way to do this is some kind of dualism, which supposes some kind of causation from the soul or from a realm that's beyond our realm. Mm. Uh, or just doubling down on and insisting that we have as part of our nature some kind of free will or radical freedom or something like that. Yeah. And I, I think I would classify all of this as kind of modern apologia in the same yeah. way that in the Middle Ages, there's a lot of apologies for uh, elements of Catholic doctrine that don't quite fit together. Mm. Today, we have a lot of apologia for this liberal split between morality and politics, which doesn't work philosophically. Mm. It just doesn't work. But because it was politically pragmatic to embrace it, uh, and because our states are built on it as their foundation, we have to pretend that it works. Mm. But it doesn't work, not really. Yeah, yeah. Because the subject isn't separate from the state, because every one of us is part of a broader whole that you can't separate a part of the universe and ascribe all causal power to that because the part is just the product of lots of other parts interacting. Um, it, it, you can't put any given part of a whole on a pedestal because it's the whole that is doing the causal work here. It's the totality that's doing the causal work. Yeah. Um, and Plato never discusses free will because it never occurs to Plato that you would think of an individual in that kind of way. Yeah, yeah. You know, as, as divorced or separate from the world. Right. That is not, that kind of division is so utterly foreign to Plato that free will is never discussed yeah. in his work. It's not until later on when the Stoics and the Epicureans get going that they start talking about the individual as potentially separate. Yeah. And you know, the Stoics argue you don't need anything in the physical world to be happy. Uh, quite contrary to Plato and Aristotle, who argue that you do need a very precise kind of political arrangement and you need a life which in part looks after that political arrangement. Uh, the yeah. Stoics argue that you just have to use your soul to overcome the situation that you find yourself in. And, mm. uh, that argument has, has come and gone at a number of points. Uh, mm. But I, I think that, that that free will idea, of course, is in Christian theology and in Catholic teaching. Mm. But there is no, uh, the, the Catholic Church does not argue that you, you can use your free will to construct your own values or to decide what the standard is. Right. Your free will is merely whether you follow the standard or don't follow the standard. Yeah. Whether you are good or, or not, that's up to you, but the standard is not up to you. In modernity and post-modernity, increasingly the standard itself becomes up for question. And of course, now today we have people who argue that the good is whatever you desire, it's whatever you will it to be. Um, yeah, yeah. And that, that is really the final flourishing of individualism when you situate the individual as if they were God and, and tell them that they can dictate from within their own perspective through their free will uh, what counts as good or not good from for them yeah yeah yes seeing humans as very yeah. difficult to build any kind of political unity that's consistent with that view of people 
if every individual can dictate what the good is from within their own perspective, mm. very hard to build a political unity that's sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Greeks, when they have the philosophical debate over lots and lots of different values, the Greeks still think that all of these values have to in some way be aiming at the good. You can have all sorts of disagreements over what the good looks like and what it concretely means in specific situations. But all of our values, all of our philosophies, all of our religions have to be aiming at the good as a concept. And I think part of what makes Weber's attempt to achieve that golden mean fail is that Weber's substantive values don't have even that much unity. Mm. They don't all even acknowledge that there is some kind of good at which they're all aiming. You know, mm. Gandhi talks about the religion that underlies all religions, which is mm. this idea that we should be aiming at truth or the good. Once you dispense with that, then the conflict is going to be so much sharper because at least if we were all in theory aiming at the same abstraction, while we might differ about what precisely that abstraction is or how it cashes out, we can have arguments with each other and we're all answerable to the same abstraction. Hmm. We don't have to agree precisely on the nature of, of the abstraction provided we're all talking about the same concept. We can have different human concepts of that form Okay, now I'm just doing Platonism. <laughs> All right, I think we should wrap up for today. Cool. Uh, on that note. So, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this one where we uh, you know, did a few on legitimacy. Now we're doing a little bit more old school stuff and we'll probably do a little bit more old school stuff for a bit. Uh, we'll see you soon and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.